following audio is from the Anglican Church, Caroline Springs. For more information about the church, go to taccs.org.au. Everyone, uh, my name's Jonathan. I'm the pastor here. Great to have you, especially if you're visiting this morning, and particular welcome to the mums. Uh, as Jimmy said, we love mums here at the church, and uh, uh, as one who has witnessed two births um, in close proximity, just let me say, you have my respect. Okay, you have my, you have my eternal respect. I think seeing that twice may be behind some of my health problems to this day, okay? Because that, that, was, that was not pretty. Uh, birth is not pretty. All I'd seen up to that point was birth on TV shows, right? Where, you know, she's pushing for a couple of minutes and then there's this beautiful, you know, freshly washed baby uh, presented to her and everyone smiles. This is not like that, all right? Reality, it turns out, is a bit different to that. And, um, Wow. Uh, the fact that you get one day a year is, is, is not really fair. I mean, there should be, like, every weekend, all right? That should be Mother's Weekend every weekend, um, from, from what I've seen of childbirth. I know Renee's um, has been particularly, um, particularly horrific. Um, first time around, I think it was 14 hours with Indy. The, the next time around, it was 36 and in both occasions, um, Renee was pretty beaten up by the whole experience. And so, um, just a lot of respect for mums this morning. And uh, just the suffering that you guys go through in order to bring kids into the world is uh, something to be praised. Uh, I think it's one thing to have, to experience, to witness the suffering of your wife uh, in childbirth. It's one thing to experience that and and, you know, with Renee, it went right, right to the death's door, right? She was, she was going to die um, during um, uh, giving birth to Judah uh, last October. And so that's, that's one thing. That's pretty full on. But I think probably even more heart-wrenching than the, the, the suffering of our wives in childbirth is seeing the suffering of children, right? If you just want to ratchet it up a notch, it's one thing for women to suffer who can, uh, you know, understand what's going on, who can uh, perhaps make sense of what's going on, who can communicate with those who are caring for them. But to see little children suffer is a whole other level of, of heart wrench. And uh, I, I got a little glimpse into this on both occasions when our kids were born, uh, India three and a bit years ago, Judah late last year, um, because on both occasions when they were born, they weren't breathing properly. And so they uh, kind of worked on them at the bedside. It was heart-wrenching for Renee because if you're a mum, you know, you're kind of craving that skin-to-skin contact straight after the birth. She was denied that because neither kids were, were breathing. And so uh, they had ended up in the ICU, in the, in the NICU, um, there at the Mercy Hospital in Heidelberg. And so she was separated by a floor um, for the, the better part of a, a couple of days after the birth. And, and so I was the one going in and, 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 and going with them in the first place and then checking up on them and um, taking photos and doing the, the go-between thing and, and just witnessing uh, this little baby, hours old, in a glass box, 
you know, hooked up to all kinds of uh, cables and monitors and having the, the, their feet pricked and, and, and lines inserted and so on. All of that is pretty gut-wrenching stuff. And it's, it's really full-on when it's a little one. I mean, it's really full-on when, when this, this child is hours into their life uh, outside of the womb and they're experiencing these things and obviously having no understanding of what's going on, just experiencing this pain or the, the, the stress of not being able to breathe. That's heart-wrenching. And, and then kind of taking up a whole other level, uh, in my case, going in and being there for a couple of days, really, and, and being able to walk out with this brand-new baby, but witnessing parents who had been sitting there in that nursery for months and months and months and months, looking at their child through a glass box. I mean, the, the little ones, right? The premature babies, the, the, the significantly unwell babies the ones who may not make it, seeing the, the, the kind of stressed parents who have been living in that room for so long. That's just a whole other level of suffering. And we see that and it, it affects us. In this, in this account this morning, as you heard, we're going to meet a man who has been blind from birth. We don't get the details about why this was, but obviously some kind of congenital failure uh, happened from his birth, and so for his whole life he's been blind. And he doesn't have neonatal intensive care. He doesn't have social security. He doesn't have anything. There's no safety net. He lives in the ancient world where if you can't work, you don't eat. If you can't get some kind of income together, you die. And so he is in this context, suffering every day of his life, and we meet him begging outside of the temple, getting enough together, it would seem, to survive day to day, a man born blind. And so what I want to do is just take us to this chapter, chapter 9, and and we're just going to walk with this guy through his story over a couple of days whereby he goes from someone who has no faith in Jesus, no understanding of who Jesus is, to one who worships him. It's a very rapid progression, and the progression is really interesting. We're able to track what happened in this guy's experience, how he came to faith. And I want to ask us along the way, where are you along this spectrum? Where are you in your relationship with Jesus? Who do you say he is? That's what this series is all about. Who do you say Jesus is? And so let's pick it up at chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. And we'll read a little and then talk a little. So John writes, As he passed by, he saw a man, this is Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So we get a little bit of context here, but not too much. Um, You notice last week, if you were here, we talked about this uh, um, situation that happened in the temple where Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees and he made the most profound statement probably that he can make uh, and certainly the most profound statement that he makes in this gospel, uh, the statement that before Moses was, I am. And you're going to need the context to understand why that statement is so Profound, and so I encourage you to grab the audio from last week. But essentially, what Jesus said in that 
statement was, I am the uncreated, uncaused, eternal God of the universe. That's who I am. And so from there, John writes, uh, as he passed by, the, the, the tense in the original Greek is, is unclear. It's deliberately ambiguous. So we, can't, uh, we don't know if he's walked out of the temple having uh, nearly been stoned to death and then as he passed by this happened or whether this is uh, days or weeks later on. It's, it's not clear and John obviously doesn't think it's that important. Um, but it is as he passed by this man that he notices this blind man, this man blind from birth. And as they pass this man, his disciples ask him, Rabbi, teacher, why is this man blind? Is it because he sinned or his parents sinned? These men, these disciples, uh, up until the point where Jesus called them, they weren't particularly learned men. They hadn't been educated in the uh, rabbinical schools. And so everything they know of God and certainly of the new covenant has come from Jesus' mouth. And so you can see why as they go along, they're, they're asking a lot of questions. You get any time around Jesus, you're going to be asking a lot of questions. And so they see things, they ask, and Jesus gives a response. That's the way uh, rabbis Uh, lived with their disciples. The way they spoke to them, the way they taught them was kind of on the run. And their question to Jesus is about this man and and it gets at the heart of the problem or the quandary of suffering. Everyone who has ever lived has thought about these things at one point or another, Christian or not. Why? Why? Why is the world like this? Why do people suffer? I know for myself, on both occasions where, uh, you know, the, in childbirth, Renee was having a really hard time and, and going very close to the edge, and then subsequently our kids are struggling for life. On both occasions, that question came to mind. Why is this happening? And on the last occasion, in October, when, when, when they took uh, Renee out of the room and off to the theatre, and it looked as if she may not survive, I spent the next hour in a room by myself wrestling with God around this question. Why is this happening? And even with all of my trust in the sovereignty of God and my theological understanding of Him working all things for my good and all these things, I promise you at that point, my mind started to ask the question, what have I done? And I started to come up with answers as to why this was happening based on what I had been doing. Where was the failure in my relationship with God? Where was the, the, the outright sin that has caused this? This must be in some part my fault. We live in a cause and effect universe. We want to see the cause for the effects. And so we, we tend to go, and especially under extreme pressure and stress, towards very superstitious conclusions. So in the heat of that moment... I was recalling to mind some things that I had done that I ought not have done, some sins that I had committed in the preceding weeks and had started to pin the blame on those things and God's kind of retribution in taking Renee to the edge of death itself. And so these guys, though not going to that extreme, are asking the question, why has this happened to this man? Is it his fault or his parents' fault? Is he paying for sin committed by his parents or is he paying for sin perhaps even committed in the womb before he was born blind or perhaps 
to pay for future sin? This is their question. And I want to say that as we come across this, this difficult theological doctrine of suffering and God's hand in suffering, that there's a tension that we need to hold. And their question gets at the heart of this tension. I wonder what you think about their question. When you hear them ask Jesus that question, what's your response? What's your gut response? Is it a good question or is it a bad question? I want to say it's a little bit of both. In the broad scheme of things, it's actually a good question. In the broad scheme of things, in the broad theological understanding of suffering, it's a good question. Here's why, a couple of reasons. First of all, the question, who sinned, is a good question because we know that all suffering is a result of sin. Right? Before sin comes into the world, no one gets born blind. No one contracts AIDS. No one dies of starvation. None of this happens. Right? And so, in the broader sense, yes, all suffering is a result of sin. Additionally, their question rightly understands that all suffering comes under the sovereignty of God. That bad things don't happen to good people and God is just up in heaven going, ah, I wish there was something I could do. Many books have been written with that kind of theology behind it. Bad stuff just happens. God doesn't want it to, but his hands are tied. That's not the God we worship. Our God is absolutely sovereign and absolutely capable of curing all suffering without even a word, right? We don't get him off the hook by saying that he's something less than God. That's a very common view of people. See this in Exodus chapter 4? I think I've got it on the screen. So this is back, we, we went to this situation last week where God identifies himself to Moses as I am. That's it. I just am. I am uncaused, uncreated. I just am in the burning bush. A little way uh, in the next chapter, in uh, Exodus chapter 4, verse 10 and 11, Moses is sort of trying to get out of the situation of being called by God to, to, to be his mouthpiece in Egypt. He, and he says, says these words. He says, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Look, I'm not the man for the job. I don't have the gifting. I can't go and speak to Pharaoh and tell him to let your people go. I just don't have the gifts. I'm not eloquent. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? That's called a rhetorical question. All right? Is it not I? Don't argue with me. You might be slow of speech. I made your mouth. Right? Who makes a man mute or deaf or seeing or blind? It's God. God is sovereign over these things. And so, for heaven's sake, never go to someone who is suffering and say, well, 
God's, yeah, God would do something, but he's just, he's just not powerful enough. God is powerful enough. We're going to see that demonstrated in this passage, but more than that, God is sovereign over its beginning, over the very fact that it exists in your experience. God is over that. God has that in hand. And so at the broader sense of the question, good question. All suffering a result of sin, all suffering under the hand of a sovereign God. But in this specific situation, this is a bad question. This is an unhelpful question. Here's why. It's always, always, always and forever a bad idea to make any kind of proclamation that this particular person's suffering is a result of sin. Always. You'll see this happen just about at every point, there's, especially if there's a natural disaster, right? Tsunami hits, a bushfire goes through Melbourne. There will always be a, a few Christians, normally pastors, who, who, who get an article or an op-ed piece or a, or a letter in the... Herald Sun or something like that, write a blog, preach a message saying, this is God's judgment. Right when it was the bushfires a few years ago, Victoria has just passed the most liberal abortion laws in the universe. This is God's judgment. Tsunami hits, right? Well, that, that place is full of Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus. This is God's judgment. AIDS. God's judgment on homosexuals, right? You, you hear this all the time, and it is always and forever a bad thing to say. And here's the thing. It's not, because it, it's not bad because it's necessarily wrong. God does judge. We see that through Scripture, and not just you know, Old Testament angry God. We see it in the New Testament, God judges people. In this way, we should not have a view of God that completely disallows that kind of view. Here's why it's a bad idea because you've got no idea what you're talking about. You don't know the mind of God. You can't make declarations about his judgments. You're a man, you're a woman, you have no idea what's going on here. When we read it in Scripture as a judgment of God, we can say, yes. That's a judgment of God. When it happens in 2014, we can't and we shouldn't. Only God knows. Where you don't have a scriptural warrant for saying something like that, then just shut your mouth. You only do discredit to God. And here's the other reason why it's a dumb question. They're standing in front of this guy, all right? This is just context. They're standing in front of a guy begging because he's been blind from birth. He needs to scrape together enough just to survive. And they're kind of theologically postulating about him. Give him some money. I buy him a sandwich. Don't, don't ask questions about why he's blind. Have you experienced this when people are talking about you as if you're not there? It's particularly rough to take if they're talking about something negative. Okay? I'm, I'm here, guys. I can, I can hear you. It's kind of discouraging. 
So good question, bad question, good in the broader scheme, just bad and unhelpful when they're talking about this specific situation, this specific man's suffering. And so Jesus doesn't get into a, a big debate about the theology of the, the question. He wants to get to helping the guy. He wants to get to the compassion side of things. But he does give them an answer which is very revealing about who God is and how we ought to think about suffering. So in, cha- in uh, chapter 9, verse 3, he says this. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus, God in human flesh, he does know what's going on here. And he says, that, no, no, it wasn't him, it wasn't his parents. This happened with a purpose. God had a purpose in this man being blind from birth and it was so that God's works might be displayed in him. Now listen, the way everyone look right at me now. The way that you respond to what Jesus just said will reveal everything about how you view God. How you view suffering. How you view the purpose of your existence. If your view of your existence is that you are at the center of the universe, you have a man-centered view of existence, and that God mainly exists to make you comfortable, that life is mainly about being comfortable, then you will hate what you just heard from Jesus. You'll say, what? Blind from birth? Suffering every day? So that God could show something about himself? That's wrong. I don't know how old he is, but let's pick 30. 30 years? See, because your presupposition is that God exists to make you comfortable. But if you have a God-centered view of the universe, if you think that the universe exists to display God's greatness, if you think that you exist to display God's greatness, then you'll say, yeah, that makes sense. Not that it's easy, not that you would wish for it, but that makes sense. That makes sense in the universe. The way the universe is constructed to bring God glory, then yes, 30 years of suffering for the sake of demonstrating and displaying that, to millions and millions and millions of people through the centuries who read John chapter 9, that makes sense of the universe. Do you see how how your view of God and your view of your existence will completely change the way you receive that? One of the foundational beliefs of this church is that we exist for the glory of God. We exist for the glory of God. I'm going through this at the moment with India. We're doing a little question-answer thing, something that Jimmy has been um, introducing, and you'll hear more about this in the future, uh, this legacy project. Um, We're going to be uh, equipping parents to disciple their kids, and part of it is this sort of uh, catechistic idea that from from a verbal age you want to be question-and-answer kind of uh, teaching your kids, helping them to figure out who God is and who they are through a series of questions and answers. So we've got to the point now where I'm asking India, not just who created you and 
and and and uh, uh, um, and and the world around you. But why? Not just who created you, but why did why did God create you? And she's getting to understand the kind of rudimentary building blocks of the universe through viewing the world this way. But she exists for God's glory. And God willing, she will carry that absolutely black and white, inverted, countercultural understanding of the universe through life against every other self-centered, man-centered, humanistic message that she will receive through kindergarten, primary school, high school, university, every advertisement, right? God turns the world upside down when he says, actually, you're not the center of the universe. I am. Actually, you don't exist to, to bring yourself comfort and ease. You exist to bring me glory. I just need to say a word here because I've, I've actually I've preached that message before and had people walking out convinced that if that's true, then we ought to just have a kind of a fatalistic um, understanding of suffering whereby if you're suffering, you just you, you grit your teeth and you bear it and it's all for God's glory, so let's, yeah, stiff up a lip and let's just all hope for heaven one day. That's not the answer. You need to be able to hold this tension that all suffering is under God's control, all suffering is under God's sovereignty, and at the same time, we ought to pray to that God for healing, for restoration. That is not an inconsistency. That is not a contradiction. Jesus, within a few verses, says that truth about God and his purpose in suffering and then heals a man. And so we ought to pray. If you are sick, you ought to be praying that God would heal you. If you have any inkling that you are in this church and God has given you the gift of healing, then make yourself known to us. There may be people suffering in our church now needlessly who could be prayed for by you and be healed. One of the best illustrations of this, both sides of that tension is in Scripture, and so we should go there for our illustration. And it's in 1 Corinthians, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 to 9. And Paul's been talking about the fact that he has experienced all of this glorious, sort of transcendent relationship with God. He has just been, he, since he got converted, he has just experienced so much profound closeness with God and he's just been talking about these revelations that he's having where he's been transported in a sense to heaven. He's been given visions and just incredible experiences by the power of the Spirit of God. And then he gets to this point where he wants to make the very point that we've been talking about. And so he said, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations a thorn was given me, this is a thorn from God, a thorn given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. He doesn't say what it is. 
It's an, he talks about it in an ambiguous sense. Is it a thorn in the flesh like a, a disease? Is it a messenger of Satan as in a person who's persecuting him? Right? We don't know. And I think he's ambiguous about it because he wants us to apply this to all of our sufferings. Whether it's someone who's persecuting us or a cancer in our bones, he wants us to be able to apply this to that situation. And so what Paul does is not, well, I understand that all of this is for God's glory, so I'm just going to hack it. No, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me three times pleading with God. He knows where this has come from. Though he describes it as a messenger of Satan, he knows that it's under the sovereignty of God. And so he pleads with the Lord to take it from him. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's exactly the point that Jesus just made. No, Paul, you're not getting healed. This affliction is under my sovereignty and I refuse to take it from you, though I could, so that my power would be demonstrated. God's not interested in Paul's power being demonstrated. God's not interested in the church bowing down to Paul as this indomitable man of God. No, he wants his power to be demonstrated. God is absolutely God-centered. God is the most self-centered being in the universe. And the reason that's not sin is because all of us should be most concerned with, most centered on, most besotted by the most glorious being in the universe. For us, that's God. And for God, that's God. I mean, I, you guys are awesome, right? I love you guys. But it's not you, all right? Look, can we just get that clear? You are not the most glorious being in the universe. God is. And so God is absolutely God-centered. And the universe exists to make much of Him. And so, no, Paul, you won't be healed because my glory will be shown. And man born blind from birth, yes, you'll be healed, but it's going to be after a long time so that my glory will be revealed. And so with that sort of theological framework in place, and you can wrestle with it, by God, I wrestled with it for years and continue to because it challenges every message we receive every day and every message we tell ourselves. Ever wondered why you are the thing you think about most every day? It's because you're completely self-centered, all right? So this is going to try and break that, and, it, and it's going to be hard for you. But with that in mind, just, just erecting that, and you don't have to take it on for yourself right now, but having that in place, that theological framework that Jesus establishes and Paul and the rest of the Scriptures confirms. Let's go to verse 6 to 7. Having said these things, Jesus spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes, 
with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So, here's another one of the signs that John has talked about, the purpose of his book, chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. The purpose of his book was to write these signs so that we'd know Jesus is God. So here's another one. He just healed a man after spitting on the ground, making mud, putting on his eyes and getting him to wash. Now there's a lot going on in that couple of verses beneath the surface. So let's just talk about it for a little bit. Number one, in doing that, in spitting on the ground, you ever wondered why he did this? It's a little bit weird, right? Um, In spitting on the ground, making mud, healing the man through that, actually not even healing the man, creating sight in the man for the first time, right? This is not restoration, this is creation. He's never seen before. So in creating sight in that man, Jesus is echoing Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Right? Last week in the preceding chapter, he said, before Moses, I am, I am the creator God, and here he's demonstrating it. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 2, I think it's verse 7, God creates the man, he gets dust of the ground and breathes into it and creates the man. Here, he gets dust, spits on it, and creates sight. If you're a Jew reading in the first century, you're not going to miss that, like we just did. Echoes of the creation account in Genesis chapter 2. He spits, he makes mud, and he creates out of nothing something. Out of no sight, there is sight. That's number one. Number two, he does this to provoke a response. Again, we keep coming back to this all the time, but if your view of Jesus is this harmless, hippie Jesus, you, just, you can't square it with just about any verse. Jesus does this deliberately to start a fight. He's just walked out, presumably recently, from people trying to kill him with stones, and now he just wants a bit more. Okay? He, he's right up for it. The fact is that it's Sabbath time, right? It's the Sabbath, it's Saturday. And rather than just saying you're healed, catch you later, like he does so often, he deliberately spits, makes mud, and thereby breaks the Sabbath. That uh, contemporary understanding of the Sabbath had extended towards doing absolutely anything like getting a bit of chewing gum out of your shoes, right? Absolutely anything. You couldn't do anything. And making mud, you may as well have been building a house, all right? You broke the Sabbath. And he does it deliberately to provoke them. And number three, I think it's written this way, and this is just a minor point, but I think it just demonstrates the obedience of this man. It's it's written very simply, right? For a, a miracle that just took place, it's very simple. It's a few words. If I was writing this, you would have got more, all right? You would have got a few exclamation marks. But John just says, Jesus made some mud, told him to go, and he, go, he went, and then he was healed. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The end. I think he just wants to demonstrate his obedience. Right throughout this passage, he uses this man as a contrast 
to the disobedience, the unbelief of the others around him, of his neighbours, of his parents, of the religious leaders. And so where Jesus says to him, go, he goes. He's obedient. And for his obedience and his, willing to listen to, his willingness to listen to Jesus, he gets blessing. That's always the case, by the way. And so he went, he washed, he came back seeing. And it causes a bit of a stir in the neighborhood. It causes a bit of a stir. And so in, chapter, in verse uh, 18, lost my place, guys. All right, sorry, in verse 8. In verse 8. The neighbours and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? So it's causing a bit of a stir. Obviously, these neighbours, you know, it's not a huge city that he's living in. These guys know this man. He's been there since birth, begging, trying to get enough to earn uh, some money to buy some bread or whatever he subsisted on. They know who this guy is. They see him every day. He's always pestering them for money. And now suddenly he's up, he's around, he's walking with confidence, his eyes are clear, and so it's causing a bit of a stir. The neighbours are all talking about it. Who is this? What has happened? Some are saying, yeah, this is the guy. I don't know what's happened, but that's the guy who was blind. Now he's seeing. Others are saying, I can't believe that. This has got to be his twin brother from out of town. right? He looks like him, but this can't be that guy. That doesn't happen. right? You get born blind from birth. You die blind. And so it's causing a bit of a stir in the neighbourhood. And the rest of this passage, I just want to look at this, the progression of this man's faith, this man who was born blind, the progression of his faith from beginning to end. And so when they ask him, how were your eyes opened? Verse 11, he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. It's interesting the way that he refers to Jesus through this passage. That's what we're going to look at. And to begin with, in verse 11, he says, that man Jesus. He refers to him as the man Jesus. He doesn't know much about Jesus. He knows that he was a man, presumably because he heard his masculine voice, and Jesus didn't have a high-pitched girly voice, just so we're clear on that, all right? He, was, he, was, he, had, a, he had a bit of a husk going to his voice. I don't know any of this. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I apologize. Um, Back to point. Uh, He heard Jesus. He knows he's a man. He he knows he spat on the ground. He's felt his spit on his face. The man Jesus, he did it. So he's got this kind of acquaintance with Jesus. He's, He's acquainted with him. He knows a little bit about him. He knows the basics. 
I wonder if you're here this morning in that situation. If you're here this morning and, and you know Jesus was a man and there's not much more that you know than that, then, then we love that you're here this morning. It is, it's one of the, the greatest blessings of being a pastor of this church is that pretty much every week there are people here for whom that's true. Jesus is a man. I've, I just want to know some more about him. That's all I know. I didn't grow up in a Christian household. I didn't go to church. Um, my school didn't have RE or I didn't listen. Right? I've never read the Bible. These kind of people come along and it's a great, great privilege for us to have you here. Jesus is that man. So at that point, at this point, having received his sight, that's what he knows of Jesus. Let's keep reading verse 13 and following. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. I love that phrase, formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they again said to the man, blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. So the situation has escalated now. It's gone beyond the neighbours. It's gone to the religious authorities. This has gone to the top of the tree now. The neighbours don't know what to make of it. There's a big controversy. They need to sort this out. It's causing a lot of disturbance. And so they go to the Pharisees, the top guys. And first, the first thing they're concerned with in classic Pharisaical style is that there has been a law that's been broken here. Not this guy's been healed, let's have a worship service, but hey, there's been a law broken here, alright? Sabbath, making mud on the Sabbath. And so their presupposition is, this guy's not from God, this isn't a miracle, he's a sinner, he broke the Sabbath. And to be fair, I think they have a genuine theological quandary here. They're genuinely wrestling with this right now. Because at one level, Jesus did break the law. And he did it a few times over. You remember allowing his disciples to glean grains of wheat on the Sabbath. And his explanation was, well, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I am God. And Sabbath has been created for people, for their blessing, not for their restriction. And the same in this case, presumably, compassion trumps law. Love trumps law. That's another sermon for another day. But these guys have a quandary. Someone appears to have been healed. I think they're smart enough to see that it's true. But this man, in their view, is a sinner. That doesn't make sense. And so they ask him, what's going on? What really happened? And I just love the simplicity of faith of this guy. He just says, tells it like it is. Jesus Put mud on my eyes and now I see. I don't know, right? It's it's a miracle. And they ask him directly at the end there, what do you say about him? What do you think? We think he's a sinner, what do you think? 
And it's interesting, his wording has changed from that man Jesus now to calling him, referring to him as a prophet. Verse 17, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said he is a prophet. And so we've been talking about this over the last few weeks, really, haven't we? Who is Jesus? For some, he's a prophet. I mean, literally, technically, for uh, Muslims around the world, Jesus is a prophet, quite a, a distinguished prophet, a prophet to be revered, but nothing more than a prophet. And then, in some sense, for most of the people around us, Jesus is, has a prophetic quality. They like the words he said. They, they think they carry some kind of power. That's why they quote him in their everyday speech, even when they don't know that their words are coming from Jesus. They, his words have enduring prophetic quality. They've, they've, they've become idiomatic. I remember reading in the, I think it was The Age, many years ago, they, they had a whole article of just um, common vernacular sayings that actually came from the Bible, and there's just tons of them that people use without ever having read the Bible. They've become idiomatic, and that's true of Jesus. He has this sort of prophetic quality in the things that he says. Now, we want to go way beyond that. Islam has it wrong. They, they damn Jesus with faint praise, and they don't take him at his word when he says, I am, before Moses was, I am. He's more than a prophet. But the progression of this man's faith is interesting. He was that man, now he is some kind of prophet. There's something more about this guy than just a man. There's some kind of godlike quality or some kind of power of God in him if he's going to spit and heal my blindness, my congenital blindness. And so he says, he's a prophet. And so we continue on, verse 18 to 23. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind. Right? So we can't argue with what the guy did now, so he, he wasn't really blind. We have, to, we have to find a way out of this quandary. They didn't believe that he had been blind and had received his sight and, uh, until they called the parents of the man who had received... Uh, beg your pardon. Uh, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, right? But now, but how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things, John comments, because they feared the Jews. Uh, for the Jews had already decreed and agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. I always wondered why John added that part of the story in. Why, why bring the parents in? Maybe it demonstrates the, the, the desperation of the religious leaders. Like, we've got to find a witness to say, this isn't real. So we'll get the parents in. No one can argue with them. I always wondered why I was in there and, and I think ultimately it's to provide a bit of contrast from the parents to their son. And the contrast is, is the contrast of courage. You're going to see in the next little bit that we read, this man is just absolutely courageous and, 
and just awesomely sarcastic. All right? That's what I love about him. I wish this guy became a disciple when they kicked Judas out because we just, I'm sure he would have said some classic lines in the rest of Scripture. All right? That would have been my plan, but as we found out uh, in this sermon at least, uh, apparently God is God and not me. So anyway, I think there's a kind of courage and a kind of sarcasm that you get after years of suffering. And, and this guy has that. And so where his parents, who presumably knew what was going on, said, go and ask him, he's going to stand up and say, this is what happened. They're kind of like cowardly parents, and I don't want to damn you because I've done this as well, but you know when your kids come to you and they ask you a tricky question and you don't want to say no or, or you can't be bothered and so you say, go and ask your mum? They've kind of done that. Like, oh, this could get us in trouble. Go and ask him. Right, go and speak to him. And so that's what they do. Verse 24 and following. Let's read that. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. Not for healing you, by the way. We're not going to give glory to God for healing you miraculously. Just give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner, right? Tell us the truth. Glorify God by telling the truth for one. We know that this man's a sinner. He answered, verse 25, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples as well? Love that. All right? Some of us are down on sarcasm. It's biblical, all right? So start being more sarcastic. It's, it's a powerful tool against people who are against God, all right? To illuminate their eyes to their folly. And so he says in response to their first question, I don't know if he's a sinner. This is all I know. I was blind and now I see. It's the passage that gave voice to John Newton's famous hymn, Amazing Grace. All right, we've all sung that line. And so here's what's happening right now. We're seeing the power of simple, personal testimony. This guy's walked into a shootout, a theological shootout, and he's way outgunned. He's got the most theologically educated people in the world trying to trip him up, trying to disprove that this was an act of God. And rather than getting into the debate, he says, I don't know, you guys are the ones who have memorized the Pentateuch. I've never read a word. I was born blind, all right? There's no Braille yet. There's no audio Bible. I don't have the answers. All I know is I was blind, now I see. And I know for so many of us, we're, we're afraid to share our faith with people at work or our family members or our friends We're afraid because we don't want to get into that shootout where they've read more than we have, where they've been watching YouTube clips of atheists disproving Christianity and they've memorized it, right? Or or maybe they're a a Jehovah's Witness and they've got all of this stuff memorized and ways to trap you. And, And you're afraid of that and that's why you don't speak. Take the cue from this guy. First of all, make a commitment to get theologically educated. That doesn't mean going to college. That means buying a few books, right? But beyond that, do what this guy did. I don't know, uh, you know, in that situation, I don't know about all of your arguments about 
creation and evolution. I, I've done the reading. All I know is I was blind and now I see. All right? That's hard to argue with. That's not an intellectual argument. That's an, that's an argument from experience and it's not weaker for that reason. Something, especially in young people today, people have a lot of time for personal testimony. This is why just about every ad you see is a, a, a talking head saying, you know, as a mother of three, I really love the way that palm olive soap gets the dirt off my dishes, right? They're doing that because people today trust personal testimony. They trust it. Advertising is leveraging it. You can too in the way that you interact with people who aren't your believers. Personal testimony. I don't know about all this stuff that you're talking about, but I was blind and now I see, all right? Give them that. Simple, powerful testimony. Give them a few examples from your life, a few ways that Jesus has made a difference. You don't need to go further than that. Then buy a theological dictionary and figure all this stuff out by all means, but don't wait. Don't wait until you're a Pharisee to start debating, start sharing your faith. And so he gives them that powerful testimony, but they're not satisfied, and so they keep pressing him, and he still doesn't have the theological answers. So he goes for sarcasm instead, which is always my way of dealing with things. And so he says, I've told you already, and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And it's sarcastic, and it's funny, and it's, it's a great comeback. It's a great line but it reveals some truth as well about what he thinks about Jesus, how he sees Jesus. Suddenly now he's calling himself a disciple of Jesus. That man, a prophet, no, now now I'm his disciple. Do you want to become a disciple as well? Do you notice that? And, and listen, the only people who have disciples are the people who are worthy of disciples. He has figured out in this short time that he's more than a man, more than a prophet. Now he is someone worthy of giving his life Becoming a disciple was a lifelong commitment to follow in that man's footsteps. You want to become a disciple as well? This man knows over the space of a couple of hours that Jesus is either who he says he is and worthy of a lifetime of following or he's nothing. Right? If he's nothing, why go to all the trouble of being kicked out of the synagogue, of being persecuted? And so it continues. The result of him becoming a disciple, they reviled him, verse 28, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. I wish I could do a sarcastic Jewish voice, all right? I'm pretty sure they invented sarcasm and they're the best at it. So you just need to imagine, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshipper of God... And does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. 
If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. So last week we, we came to the conclusion that Jesus is divisive. The most divisive man who has ever lived, you might say. That at least all through the Gospels, whenever anyone met Jesus and saw him for who he truly was, they went one of two ways. They wanted to either crown him or kill him. They either followed him for the rest of their lives, often under death, or they stood there and said, crucify him. You saw this, we, we talked about the illustration, that the two men either side of him on the cross. One insults him, curses him, the other one says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That has always been the way. Only in our society today do the majority of people just kind of, are they kind of indifferent to Jesus? We, we, kind of, we, we just don't really care. It's inconsequential. For most of human history, he's either produced absolutely wholehearted, committed to death, lifelong worshippers or people who will kill him. And that just happened here as well. One man says, do you want to become a disciple of him as well? That's what I am, lifelong disciple. I'm paid up for life. The others who are standing there curse this man, cast him out of the synagogue, which means being socially ostracized for the rest of your life and unable to worship God in their understanding and then go on to kill Jesus. Jesus is divisive. We'll say it again. Don't walk out of here today ambivalent. Don't walk out of here today indifferent. Walk out of here today saying, I hate Jesus. I hate that guy at the front. I hate Christianity. I hate everything it stands for. Or say, this guy is worthy of my life. So they're divided. One group goes on to kill Jesus. The other is completely socially and religiously ostracized. And here we see Jesus' response. And here we see this man seeing Jesus for the first time. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe and worshipped him. So the first time he sees Jesus, remember last time he just had mud on his eyes. He went and washed, and now Jesus has found him after the event. And he sees Jesus and obviously doesn't recognize him But when he sees Jesus and hears him, then for the first time he truly sees him. That all through this passage, we've been talking about physical sight and physical blindness, but under it all, John wants us to see spiritual things going on here. There is a spiritual blindness that characterizes the Pharisees and some of his neighbors, and there is a spiritual sight that's been granted to this man by the grace of God. 
And so when he sees Jesus, and when Jesus says to him, I am the Son of Man, if you don't know what that title means, it's the one that Jesus most often uses of himself, and it's the ancient Jewish title for the one who would come on the Day of Judgment. The one who would judge the living and the dead. The one sent by God as his vice-regent and king over all creation. Jesus says to him, you see me. You see him. I am he. And we see this man going from saying, Jesus the man, Jesus the prophet, Jesus my Lord, my, my teacher, my rabbi, the one who I follow, to now Jesus, my God. He falls down and worships him. He falls down and worships him. The word there in the original is literally falling prostrate. He collapses on the ground and worships him. You don't do that as a Jew unless you're 100% sure that it's God standing in front of you. So I wonder where you're at this morning. I wonder where you're at this morning. Jesus, is he a man? Is he something more than that, but something less than God? Is he someone worthy of your time and effort? Someone worthy to follow and find out more about? Perhaps you're here this morning and it's just clicked. Maybe I should find out more about this man. I can follow him, though I'm not yet ready to worship him. Maybe I could join a midweek group where they talk about him. Maybe I could join an alpha class coming up a little later in the year where I can find out more about who he is. Perhaps I could come week to week here to church and hear about more, more about who he is. Maybe you're at that point. Or are you at the point where you're willing and being enabled by God to fall down and worship him? Notice there's no option there to come to church and sit back and kind of not pay attention and do your weekly religious duty and tick that box and then go on to the more important things in life. Pew sitting isn't an option. And I've said this from the beginning, right? From the beginning, for the last couple of years, if pew sitting is your thing, you need to find another place to go and do that. This is not your church. And it's not just because we don't want you. It's because it's going to be much harder for you to do that here than somewhere else. right? Presumably, pew-sitting is about having an easy ride. And so there are places where they'll make you comfortable to do that. I can give you a few names of churches. But there's no pew-sitting on any page here. Never. More Christians have been killed in the last hundred years for being Christians than in any other century. In fact, all the other centuries put together. You talk to them about pew-sitting Christians and they'll just, what are you talking about? We're dying! So, as far as I'm concerned, you've got a choice. You can make a lifelong commitment that will always require, you know, backward steps and 
pleading for forgiveness. And I'm not, I'm not saying you need to be a super Christian, but I think to be a disciple, I know to be a disciple, there needs to be a conviction in your heart that this is the rest of my life. Every day is going to be following Jesus. It's not going to be something tacked on a Sunday morning as long as there's no Mother's Day or it's not a long weekend or the kids aren't playing football or we had a late night last night or McDonald's has a two muffins for $3 deal. Or, right? That's our Christianity. It's pathetic. Let me just keep ranting because I'm seeing a counsellor but it costs a lot of money and you guys are free, all right? And you get what you pay for, all right? So I've seen the offertory statistics. You get what you pay for, all right? So here's the thing, right? Last week, we had a, a pool up on stage and we had a girl named Erin and we baptised her celebrating new birth in Jesus. A miracle, right? You think blind from birth becoming seeing is a miracle? That's nothing. Someone being regenerated, that's a miracle. That's the biggest miracle you can witness. And though it didn't happen in the water on that day, we were symbolizing what had happened in the weeks and months before in Aaron's heart. And I looked out from that incredible experience, feeling the encouragement of witnessing it happen, and I saw a half-empty church. And then what happens is, I go to the rest of the week, catching up with people in our church, and hearing them moaning about not feeling close to God. Moaning about feeling discouraged in the faith. Moaning. Why doesn't God just encourage me? Well, you weren't here for the baptism. And it's not just baptism, right? This is, we talk about the means of grace. And this is not hard. This is not, this, is, this is not hard, right? Man born blind, he gets this bit, all right? And he was a simple guy. God has given us means of grace to encourage our faith and strengthen it. The Bible is what we read. Prayer is what we say. The Lord's Supper is what we eat. Baptism is what we participate in and witness. These are the things that are given to us. Small groups are the context in which we're encouraged, right? Sunday is the context in which we worship. It's simple. It's a mathematical equation. And so, honestly, there are times that you'll go through periods of spiritual dryness. And you'll come to me and you'll say, I'm dry, what can I do? And I'm not going to yell at you and I'm not going to condemn you. I'm going through a period of that now myself. But if through that whole period you've been doing nothing to help yourself, if God has been laying out a buff A for you and you've been sitting at the chair at the table whinging about being starving, then you're not going to get a lot of compassion. And I know probably these are the people I shouldn't be talking to, right? You are here. But there is an epidemic lack of of commitment in our church. And so not for my sake. Honestly, it's not for my sake. And this is 
I've got to check this because I've got to make sure it's not just my ego wanting thousands of people to hear this incredible message, right? And I'm sure it's not about that. I'm sure it's because I'm, I'm freaking crying for you guys. I'm up at night thinking about you guys. I'm going through some depression, which in large part is a result of seeing lack of spiritual growth in you guys and, and, and just wanting it to be different. It's heartbreaking seeing people stuttering along, stunted growth like, like dying plants in my backyard. And so for God's sake and for your sake, avail yourselves of the feast that he has for you. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Sunday morning exists mainly for you to come and feast. And we're doing everything we can to make it a feast. And maybe you say, maybe, well, at the moment, it's a half a piece of burnt toast, right? We're, try- we're, we're working on that, okay? But, but listen, it's, you're not coming here for my sake. You're not. And, 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 and by God, you're not coming here for God's sake. If you think you're coming here because God is lacking something, you're not. You're not doing God any favours. You're not even doing me a favour. You are here to feast. We have people set apart, like me, Jimmy and others, to provide sustenance for you. Why do we preach for an hour? We want you to be fed, not snacking, but feasting. And so come here and just see a buffet. If you're hungry, come and eat. And when Jackie gets up here and gets baptised, come and bring your friends. Be encouraged. God wants you to be encouraged. I think that's all we need to say. So why don't we pray Pray for God's mercy. Heaven knows we need it. All right, let's pray. Father, we come to you as broken people. And though I'm the one yelling, I know that I'm just as broken. Uh, we're all in need of your grace. Just as the man who was born blind was helpless without Jesus' intervention, all of us are helpless without your intervention. And so we thank you for intervening. You've already intervened. You sent your son into the world. He died in our place for our sin and was raised for our salvation. And you've intervened by providing the local church, by providing us with the word of God written in our language and at our fingertips, by providing us with a a means of communication with you in prayer, by providing us with bread and wine, remembering Jesus' death and encouraging us in our faith, by providing us with the sign and symbol of baptism to encourage us and demonstrate that you are a God who saves and that lives are changed, by providing us with small groups that meet in the week for our encouragement, by providing us with a church service that is designed 
that we might feast on the goodness and grace of God. So forgive us for treating you like a casual, optional, added extra. For treating you like the sauce that we might choose to put on the steak of our real occupation. Everyone in this room needs to repent. Everyone. And so let's take some time now to do that. There's a feeling in the heart of every believer here right now that's going to lead you either to want to punch me in the face, and I've taken a couple over the years, or it's going to lead you with a broken heart to humble yourself before God and ask for his forgiveness. And so I want us to do that now. I often find it necessary to kneel so that I experience in my body what I'm experiencing in my heart. If you want to do that, you can do that. Otherwise, we're just going to take a couple of moments now just to confess, just to agree with God that we're not the centre of the universe, that we're not the God of the universe, that we're not perfect, that our priorities are wrong, and that we need his spirit to restore them to right standing. So let's do that now. Let's pray. Father, I pray for those who are here who are too proud to repent, and I pray that you would open blind eyes, that you would crush pride, and that you would bring all of us before you in humility. And to the repentant heart, Lord God, please give comfort We know that you are slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving all who humbly repent and trust in your Son as Saviour and Lord. And so we say with confidence, friends, God therefore forgives us all in Christ Jesus in whom there is no condemnation, just discipline, but no condemnation. Amen. You've been listening to the Anglican Church Caroline Springs podcast. For more information, go to taccs.org.au.